I did not grow up going to church regularly. I had a wonderful childhood, but we just did not attend church. Jesus just seemed like a figure and someone who seemed like a good person. It all seemed like a great idea, but I just never was presented with the idea of actually having a relationship with Jesus. I found myself seeking happiness in accomplishments, getting that next degree, getting that next job, moving into that nice apartment, buying that house. And I just found myself being very disappointed. When I started dating my boyfriend, who's now my husband, we uh, found Rock Point Church and we walked in, um, immediately just felt like there was something that was kind of holding on to us here. Um, quickly after joining Rock Point, we started um, attending a small group and this group of believers just really cared about my journey and my relationship with Christ and um, just provided me with great evidence of such a loving and wonderful God. I was driving one day to work and it was a very busy and hectic week. I remember a moment when I just kind of felt a peace come over me. Up until that point, I had been praying and, and seeking God and asking to feel his presence, but I never, I, I could never feel him. And in that moment, I knew it was God just kind of putting his hand on me and saying, I'm here. Through my journey of salvation, I've been able to understand uh, my role in this world. Um, whereas my job kind of used to be just something I got up and did every day, now I see a purpose in it. I see that God put me into that place for a reason. Looking to the future, I'm just very excited to share my story with others and to explain to others just why it's so important and why we all need Christ. Well, good evening. I love that story that Sarah tells of how she came to faith and her spiritual journey and just how she is now growing here and just uh, excited about what God's doing in her life. And as we consider uh, the transformation that Christ made, um, I, I want to say Merry Christmas, and I want to start off with a word. And if you know how to pronounce this word and you know what it means, I'd like you to raise your hand. Now, don't raise your hand unless you're okay with me calling on you. Because first hour, somebody really got embarrassed after I called. So don't just raise your hand to look smart um, unless you know it. Okay, so here's, here's the word. Anybody know how to pronounce this word and what it means? No takers? Okay. I scared you out of it, Okay. So what is this word? This is Christogenia acatophobia. Christogenia acatophobia. Okay. What do you think that might mean? I won't call on you now. Okay. We, we know phobia means fear, correct? Uh, Christo or Christ, Christ, that's Christ, that's Jesus. It's the fear of Christmas. Okay. This is a real phobia that people have. Um, and I know some of you kids are going, are you kidding me? This is the best day of the year. Uh, but for some people, it's not so much because they had traumatic or tragic events occur at Christmas, or maybe they're just afraid of some big guy in a red suit coming in their house. You know what I mean? What, whatever it is, they have a fear of Christmas. 
And tonight I want us to look at the fear of Christmas because there are different types of fears. There's good fear and there's phobia fear. Now, while we're talking about phobia fears, um, there are a lot of different types of fears. And uh, the Bible uses a couple of Hebrew words, one called pakad and the other one called yura. And pakad are kind of these phobias. It's something that you project onto something that's really in itself not that big of a deal, or it's not as bad as you, at least you think it's going to be. And so it's, uh, but it's very difficult for you. Uh, you get into anxiety in this situation, or you get into deep uh, fear, so to speak. Uh, so what are some words that uh, people deal with phobia. Why? Well, aerophobia, what does aero mean? Air, so fear of flying. Know that one? Uh, acrophobia, what's that? Fear of heights. Uh, arachnophobia, spiders, that's a real one. Uh, claustrophobia, small spaces. Uh, here's one, this is a little harder one. Uh, cynophobia, anybody know what that one is? Fe- no, not fear of sin, but fear, fear of dogs. Fear of dogs. Uh, turophobia. I, I don't think anybody's going to know what this one is. This, is a, this one actually is pretty obscure. Anybody have any clue what this one is? No, it's the fear of cheese. Uh, and I'm not making this up. It's the fear of cheese. Uh, I actually watched an interview with this one girl. I wanted to I said, does anybody actually have this? And so they had some people. And I mean, like they can't, if they walk in a room, there's cheese. They like get this anxiety. They start throwing up. I mean, it's kind of crazy. So fear of cheese, it's a real one. Uh, neophobia. Neophobia is fear of new things. Uh, uh, chorophobia, I almost have this one. Does anybody know what this one is? This is a fear of dancing. I, I kind of have that one right there. Now, nomophobia, I think a lot of you have this. Some of your children have this condition. It's the fear of being without your cell phone. It literally is. And like, it's like, the, it's the fastest growing phobia in the United States right now. It really is. Like people, some of you, if you're getting a panic attack or you get anxiety when you see your cell run down, uh, it, you might have nomophobia. You need to get that checked out. Um, and here's an interesting, is xenophobia. Fear of the color yellow. Yeah. Apparently, sometimes people have a traumatic experience and they see the, you know, the yellow lines or some yellow warning signs. And so that yellow warning just kind of produces a fear and an anxiety. And then ablutophobia. I think um, a lot of children deal with this when they're younger. Ablutophobia is the fear of bathing. Okay. So <laughs> these are all real fears. Um, they're not good fears. They're not the fears that we want to have, but they're the fears that uh, we adopt or we connect with or we associate with, and uh, they, they hold us down sometimes. And the Bible talks about fear uh, over and over again. Uh, as I mentioned a while ago, there are like the phobias, and that word is pakad. It's when we attach it to something uh, that is more than it should be. But there's another type of fear that's good. Matter of fact, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, to be, to, to know true, to be truly and wise, you must fear the Lord. What is that talking about? It's yira, yira, that type of fear. Now, what does yira feel? Well, the best way I describe it to you, let me give you a few examples, for personal examples. Uh, I had the opportunity with my family to go to the Grand Canyon a few years ago. And when I was looking over it, it's like I was in awe. And like there was a fear as I was thinking, I can't get too close to the edge here but it was so massive and awesome. It was kind of a year. It was kind of this like awe fear, so to speak. Um, same thing when I went to Niagara Falls and I saw Niagara Falls for the first time. Well, really the only time in my life. 
you know, just all that water rushing down and you realize how small you are and how magnificent and powerful it is. Um, I, I felt this before, uh, the first time I spoke to a large group, because um, I, I really wasn't afraid uh, of speaking. I've never really been afraid of speaking in public, um, but it was such a, a big, so to speak, opportunity. And I felt like God was moving so strongly in that room at the time. And that was time for me. And I was just like, good night. Maybe sharing your faith. There, there are a lot of different awe-stricken moments. Maybe when you had your first child, uh, there's this awe, this fear that's bigger than you are that causes you to tremble inside. And then we have to determine what are we going to do with that fear? How are we going to respond to that? And um, I'll go ahead and give you the, the answers. Really, there's two primary, there's three what things you can do. One, you can, you can run away, you can flee. Now, there's also the warning fear that's naturally innate in all of us uh, when, you know, there's a bear coming toward us or there's our house is on fire that says, you know, danger, Will Rod, you got to get out of here. Okay, that's natural. But then there's kind of the fear that we start to associate this unnatural, that's Picard, and then Yira. So how do we respond? Well, you can run, you can fight. I'm going to fight this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight whatever this situation is, or uh, you can choose to face it and embrace it. And that's the choice we all have to make. And we're going to notice several characters in Scripture that when they encounter something that is Yira, when they experience God, when they experience uh, God's messenger, Yira comes over them. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, beginning the first verse, as we look at the fear of Christmas. Now, let's start right here, and this is probably the most recognized uh, rendition of the story in the Scriptures. Uh, and it's found in Luke chapter 2, and it says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, let's stop right there. Caesar Augustus. This is a brutal man. Uh, he, matter of fact, we know that uh, when they were expanding the Roman Empire, uh, the Gauls didn't respond like they wanted to. And so he killed a million Gauls. Um, that was people in Northern Europe at the time. And he enslaved a million of them. And every time they'd have a parade, they'd come back, they would have the numbers of people that they had killed and the numbers of people that they had enslaved. And the, and the crowds would clap and he took great honor. He exercised brutality that people would be afraid to confront him. Of course, he was, uh, his uncle was Julius Caesar. And after Julius Caesar died, when they had his funeral, they gave him the title of divinity. So what um, Augustus did, you may know him as Octavian, Augustus said, uh, I'm going to take this title, and he took on the title uh, Diva, or Diva, so to speak, uh, Philia, which means divine son, son of God. He took on deity himself in 42 BC and recognized himself and had the Senate recognize him, and he operated in such a manner. You see, the worldview, and the worldview that uh, not only that the Romans taught, but they perpetuated was that if you are rich, if you are elite, if you are a ruler, it's because God has deemed it so, the gods have deemed it so. And if you're not, it's because you shouldn't be because either of something you've done in the past or something your parents did, and it's, they didn't have the word karma back then, but it's just karma. So you're getting what you deserve, and this is the way the gods want it. 
And he definitely perpetuated that view. He preached that gospel, so to speak. And so that was Caesar Augustus. And so the people of that time, particularly in Judea, they're under the Roman authority and they're constantly having their land take away. They're constantly being heavily taxed. That's what's going on right here. So that the Roman machine could continue to function and expand itself globally. And so that's what's going on. So it's a very dark time. To oppose Caesar is to die. To oppose his rules or to repose his will means death, regardless of what it costs you. So you could fight and you would die, or you could simply just freeze up and not say anything. And this is the world that Jesus is being born into. And if you'll notice, uh, he's going to be born not into a palace, but into a manger. So in these days, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered so they could be taxed, as we were just talking about. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed. Now, let's stop right there. So we see Caesars, when he has a, any kind of fear or any kind of threat, he's going to fight. He's going to destroy. He's going to kill. That's how he deals with things. But now we see two individuals who are peasants. They are poor. The reason we know they're poor is because when they go to present Jesus at the temple before the priests, they offer a sacrifice that only the poor could offer, which were turtle doves. That's all that, the, that was reserved for those who were the, the poorest of the poor. And so that's what they offer. So here's Joseph, uh, who's poor, and here's Mary, who's a 14, 15-year-old, 16-maybe-year-old girl, and they're both very poor. First of all, we know that an angel comes to, to uh, Mary and tells her, you are favored by God, and you are going to have a child. And she said, how can that be possible? I've never been with a man. And she said, the Spirit of God will come upon you, and you shall have a child who will be the Messiah. And so uh, she, when she hears that, she embraces it. She faces it. She embraces it. But now she's got a fiancé, although it was a little stronger than a fiancé, um, who she's got to explain this to. And this is not a it's not a good picture, particularly in Judea uh, at this time. Uh, she could be stoned or, or at a minimum disgraced. And so Joseph, the Bible says, is a righteous man, and he doesn't want to disgrace her. So he's going to quietly divorce her and sever this relationship. But an angel comes to him, and when he first sees it, he's startled. But he said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as your wife for the Spirit of God has come upon thee, and she shall have the Son of God. And so Joseph obeys. He embraces this year of fear, this awesomeness, uh, but something's much bigger than him. And so there we are. And then it says in verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. <clears throat> and they were filled with fear. Now I mentioned to you, there's that natural startling fear that we have that, uh, so do we speak warning fear. But then where does that fear go? 
It goes into Yira. It's the awesomeness, the holiness of God. And it's interesting that he comes to shepherds because shepherds are the lowest tier uh, occupation that you can have at this point. Usually it's young teenage boys or uh, people who've had some trouble in life, gotten in some trouble and couldn't find another job because they don't have the credibility. So they stick them out in the field with the sheep. And so coming to the shepherds, he's coming again to the lowly, to those who are marginalized. And the Bible says <clears throat> that I, have, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away for them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then, of course, they go and they find Mary and Joseph and Jesus uh, in the stable. And the Bible says that when they left, they went away praising and worshiping God. They had experienced the year and they had stepped in. They had faced it. They had embraced it. That's a good question for you tonight. How, what, how are you handling your fears? In particular, how are you handling God Almighty when he speaks and he moves. You know, in the earlier services, um, after I got through uh, preaching, I was sitting out, I was sitting here in the, in the congregation. And as we began to sing here at the close, I felt the year of God, the awesomeness of God. And I believe as we step in and we step toward him, we can consistently experience the year of the fear that produces awe, respect, and honor, and worship. That's what happened with Mary. That's what happened with Joseph. And that's exactly what the angels did. I, I love it because they are in awe of what God has done. What has God done? He has sent his son, God in the flesh, to earth to live the life that you and I couldn't live and, and should have lived and die the death that we should have died. That's exactly what he's done in his perfection, in his infinite might and glory. He stepped into our world and not just into our world, but into the most marginalized section of society possible. He comes and dwells with the poor, with those who are outcast, for those who are kicked out, for those who are looked over. And he gives unto them life and the world is changed. Literally, the world changes through what Christ has done. Have you ever thought about this? Some of you have maybe heard this before, but it's called one solitary life, the impact that Jesus made and the way that he did it. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or even owned a house. He did not go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of the public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. 
While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he remains the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as much as Jesus Christ. You might say, well, how is he affecting my life today? Let me tell you a few things. Number one, uh, when Jesus came on the scene, children were not regarded or respected or honored in any way. Once you became an adult and you could, could contribute to society, then that was great. But Jesus said, no, I welcome the little children to come to me. And he showed them honor and respect and value. Not just that, we also see that when Jesus, uh, after Jesus was on the scene and after Christianity began to spread, uh, up to that point, there was education, but it was education for the elite. You had to be powerful, you had to be a leader, or you had to be wealthy. There was no education for the poor. Most were illiterate. Most could uh, not perform any kind of, didn't have any kind of educational training other than their trades. But through Christianity, schools began to open for those who didn't have, and it was provided free of charge. And we see schools to start, start to come on the scene. And even as we look at Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Princeton and Yale, do you realize those were all schools started by the Christian community for educational purposes? A hundred of the first 106 universities in the United States of America were started by the Christian community for that purpose. And so we see the incredible impact that Christ's life has had on education. What about charity in modern hospitals? During the time of Christ, up to that point, there were hospitals, but again, they were for the select few. They were for the military, for the rich, for the politicians. There were no public hospitals. But after Christ, as Christianity began to expand, they began to show compassion. They began to open up buildings where they would care for those who were sick and infirm. They began to take the children who would be left because maybe it was a girl or maybe it had a deformity or maybe it, it had some kind of illness or disease that would be left out to the elements. They would take them and they would take them and they would uh, adopt them or they would place them in an orphanage and they would preserve their lives. And we see how Christ, through the influence of his fathers changes the culture of the world at that time you also see this concept of servanthood humility leader as a matter of fact certain leadership humility at all we don't see anything in ancient literature where anyone would ever get up and describe as a leader humility at being a virtue but Jesus got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples no one had done that or had proclaimed that in that manner up to that point. But now we see uh, there are leaders who have been impacted all around the world through that servanthood leadership mindset. And not just that, as we continue, we see how Christ also made a difference in um, something else that I can't remember off the top of my head. It was a big deal though, I tell you, all right? Seriously. So here's how we see Christ. Christ came to the lowly first, to the marginalized, to the outcasts, to the poor, to those who had disabilities. And in that culture, remember, the thought was God made you like you are. It's your own fault. And that's what you deserve. And what does Christ do? He comes into that culture and he says, 
Come to me, all ye who are heavy and weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you peace. I'll give you shalom. I will accept you. It's not about what you can do for me, but it's what I can give to you. How amazing is that? When we stop and we look at the impact of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas, that God came to earth in the form of man, and he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. I, I, I love, uh, matter of fact, I was with my mother, our family, we went over to her uh, place of living uh, up, up the road here, and, and uh, she plays the piano, and we sang some songs. And one of the songs we sang was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now, when I was a kid, I really loved that song. I really loved Rudolph. Now, I got really tired of Charlie Brown, the grandchildren. I was so done with all that. But Rudolph, that's cool. The guy with the red nose, you know. And you think about it. I really just see kind of the grace in the gospel as, as I look at Rudolph. Because you remember the song? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would say it glows. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. And then they didn't let him play whatever reindeer games were. You know what I mean? And so they laughed, they marginalized him, they castigated him, they put him out because he was different, uh, because he had what they perceived to be a disability. And so they removed themselves from him. But then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Because it's foggy and I need a light, I guess. And I don't want the planes running into I'm not sure what was going on. And so... Then the reindeer loved him as they shouted out with glee, Rudolph, you'll go down in history. That's a beautiful picture almost of the grace and gospel of God right there. That we were separated. We were outcast. There was nothing that God could glean or desire of us, but in his infinite grace and mercy, he sent one to us. Jesus Christ came to us and he said, you know what? I'll take you. I'll use you. I'll redeem you. I will cleanse you. It's the picture of the big God story. God made the world perfect in its creation, but man in his sinful nature said, I don't want God. I don't want to live under your authority. I will be responsible. I'll make the decisions. And each one of us have done that ourselves. We've said, I'm the God of my life. I'll make the decisions. I'll be the ruler of my life. And we say, get off the throne. I'll take your place. And that's called the fall. But in God's mercy and grace, what did he do? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus on our behalf to forgive us. And if we would enter into relationship with him and transfer our trust from our goodness, from our efforts, from our deeds, from anything else to what Christ has done for us, then we might receive the grace and be forgiven by God Almighty and be seen as cleansed. And you know the good news of that? Once that's happened, once he begins to redeem our faults, our past, uh, our current circumstances, ultimately he's going to fully restore us. And that's the big gospel story. Have you accepted it? Have you received it? Have you come to the place where you recognize, you know, I've got some, I've got a fear. I kind of have that fear toward God, but be honest with you, when I experience him, when I sense him, I'm okay for a moment, but then I just kind of want to get away from it. Or maybe I fight it and go, you know what? I'm not going to be emotionally manipulated, and there's, I'm a logical man or woman, and I've got a good education, and I don't have to buy all this. And you can fight it, or you can face it and embrace it. And when you sense the, the era of God, when we sing, 
when, you're, when we pray, when he speaks and his presence is real, step in, embrace it, and say, yes, God, I trust you. God, what is the next step you are asking me to take? I say, yes, Lord. Will you do that tonight? Father, thank you in your infinite mercy and grace. While we were still sinners, you died on our behalf. And Lord, I pray if there's one here tonight that doesn't know you, that they would stop this moment and say, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I cannot save and make myself good enough for your presence. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But I am asking by grace for you to forgive me, to be the Lord of my life. I remove myself from the throne and I place you on the throne and I serve you as my God. Lord, thank you for your great grace. Thank you for coming into my life. And I commit my life to you at this time. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.